Hey there, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Samira Stalks. This is a podcast about the dreamers out there and their stories of entrepreneurship. So if you're curious, creative, and you're ready to make an impact on this world, then this is for you. Welcome to episode 13 with me, your host, Samira Sohail. Today, we're talking fashion, business, and social impact with my guest, Leo Rodrigue, who is the founder of Holly, a premium outerwear fashion line for women. She was one of four raised by a single mother who instilled what I call a sense of graft. Born in New Zealand and turning up in London with a bag and a couple of hundred pounds, she worked literally any job to pay the bills to be able to start her own fashion line, Holly. She spent time out in Cambodia and found that local women wanted just to be able to care for their families, security and new skills. So she couldn't quite square how charity handouts actually negatively impacting the working economy there. Yet, at the same time, profit can be a dirty word in NGO communities. Despite pushback from the expat community for what she was doing, she was abused, kicked out of places, spat on. She ploughed through and runs Holly Studios, a training and manufacturing clothing plant in Cambodia, which produces for Holly and other fashion brands selling in the West. In this episode, we'll discuss how Holly is more than a high-quality coat and supports a much-needed microeconomy in Siem Reap in Cambodia, against the backdrop of consumers caring about where their products and services come from. We'll discuss fashionpreneurship. With no designer background or formal fashion experience, how Leah used her operational skills and international experience to create a high-end fashion company. And lastly, how her attempts to stalk Samantha Cameron's staff at number 10 when she was invited to an event there went, and whether she was able to get the holly coat on her. So welcome to the show, Leah. You're our first, what I call, fashionpreneur uh, we've had. So thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So in your own words, uh, can you tell us what Holly is and where the name came from? The company is named after the Hindu Festival of Colour. Um, I wanted to make coats that were that had colour to them. Like the London market's quite dull, um, there's a lot of black. Grey. And I wanted to, and grey. We do do grey, so that's probably, <laughs> I can't say that one. Um, but I wanted to inject a little bit of colour into it, um, push the boundaries a little bit. The meaning behind the festival is about the change in seasons. Mm-hmm. We're an outerwear brand, so that kind of works quite well. And also about new beginnings, which really is focused on the training and production centre that we have in Cambodia, okay. where we're working to create new opportunities for women in Siem Reap. Before we move into Holly itself and Holly Studios, uh, in your own words, can you just tell us a bit about your backstory and your upbringing in New Zealand? Um, So I'm the youngest of four. I have three older brothers, raised by a single mum who is an absolute grafter. Um, My mum worked something like three or four jobs at a time in order to keep going. Uh, which is, I think, probably why we're all, all of us siblings are, are three out of four of us entrepreneurs. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> we're all just a bit, I think you've got to be a bit mad to be an entrepreneur, so maybe that's it. Um, so I'm from just north of Christchurch in the South Island, mm-hmm. um, small town. I left when I was 17. Okay. Um, we had an exchange student live with us when I was like 15, 16. And her dad came over to visit us while she was living with us. And, and in order to repay the favour of having her, he invited me to go and live with their family in Denmark. 
Okay. So I so I got placed in a school. They put me in the local school. So okay. it was just a private exchange. Um, I stayed on for another year. Um, at that point, I did anything and everything just to kind of keep myself going. So I cleaned hotel rooms. Um, yeah, anything that would pay the bills, really. Worked in bars. Um, so at 19, my visa ran out. And the idea of going back to New Zealand at that point in time, and especially back to a small town, was just not an option. Okay. So um, one of my grandparents is from the UK and packed my one bag of belongings that I had and turned up in London with like two or 300 quid or something like that to start with. And within two weeks of being here, I had a job and a flat and just started out working for the local council, actually, just like inputting data. Okay. Um, and just grafted from then on, really. So I spent 10 years working in operations, kind of moving up the ladder and, and ended up in banking um, at the end of it. And so you end up, uh, I think, in your, is it in your 20s where you go out to Cambodia to start working... Um, yeah, I went out when I was in my mid-twenties okay. to work. I worked with a UK-based charity out in Cambodia, um, doing helping with the operations and the teachings at some schools out there. Okay, and can you talk to us about what I call your aha moment, where you were out there, and this idea of setting up both a training and manufacturing programme and a fashion line started to bubble up? <sighs> I don't know if there's ever one aha moment. I think for me it happened over quite a long period of time. I was in Cambodia for six months and and saw really big gaps. Um, Sam Reap is a town that's focused primarily on NGO support and and on tourism. So if you don't speak English, uh, there's not a lot of work to go into. Okay. I saw a huge amount of these NGOs setting up projects but not really putting anything into place as employment at the end of that and not really thinking about the longer term the effect. longer term effect and the work that they were doing was great but long term people ended up going straight back into what they were doing beforehand which and what types of things would they be doing beforehand most of them would be rice farmers okay so 80% of Cambodia's population are rural and work in rice farms so it seemed to be a situation where we were putting all the skill and investment into people and programs but what didn't seem to be a long lasting impact okay so I suppose my aha moment came over that six months I spent a lot of time interviewing women really? and asking them look when you're finished, what do you want to do? Yeah. Um, what would you do if there was a centre here for you? And what skills do you want to learn? And what's your end goal? Um, I think it's it's so important to actually engage with people and provide a service that they actually wanted. And, and most of them came back and said, look, I just want stable employment. I want yeah. to continue to learn new skills. I want to support my family. Okay. To me, that's pretty much what people want all around the world. Yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't specific for there, but there just wasn't that market for it. So there was an inkling when I was there in that first six months. Yeah. But when I came back to the UK and I spent a year after that kind of researching and looking at kind of what I could do, it was probably a year later that I 
sat my husband down and broke it to him that I was going to leave my job. Okay. So. And how did he take that? Um, supportive? He, uh, extremely supportive. <laughs> extremely supportive. Um, he just gets it. Like, yeah. he, we went out to lunch and I said to him, look, I'm going to okay. go back to the office and resign. Okay. And and he was like, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. And it was kind of like we just had this conversation of like, you know, do you want one sugar or two? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, no, 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 you, you, you do understand that I'm going back to resign. And he was like, yeah, I know, Leah. I know when you tell me you're going to do something, you're going to do it. Like, okay. so, yeah, incredibly supportive and um, continues to be supportive to this day when I'm up at 3 a.m. stressing about something and he's... Well, telling me to go back to sleep. <laughs> that's good. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the pushback in Cambodia itself, actually. So a lot of people who might work in factories there might work in what I call kind of fast fashion turnarounds. And like I said, expat communities don't often look favourably uh, towards profit-making entities. Um, how have you dealt with that? Oh, it's been really tough. Um how have I dealt with it? Um, just keep on trucking on, I yeah. think. It's been... I knew for me and for the woman that I was working with that it made sense. When I initially interviewed the woman, I made it very, very clear that we were setting up not as an NGO, but yeah. to set up as a business to make a profit. Yeah, They were all fine with it. It... And I, I figured if the Cambodians are fine with it and if they get it... Yeah, then the wider community... Then actually it's it's no one else's issue. Okay. Um, I think you become very selective in who you work with. Yeah. And I think you've got to be 100% clear about what your morals are and you have to stick to them. And my morals were that the only business, the only activity that will work there long term will be something that makes a profit. Okay. And can you expand a little bit on the training program that you put the women through? Because that's something that's quite unique to your, I guess, your operations and your supply yeah. base. So we recruit directly from charity and market run sewing programs. Um, these programs run from anything to six, uh, from three to six months. Okay. What they learn in them is very, very basic skills. So you learn how to thread a machine, sew a few seams, and you can go and make whatever you want. What you don't get out of that is the quality. Yeah. And that wider understanding of what's actually needed in order to make a garment. They can make them. Whether you make two that are exactly the same is a completely different story. So we we recruit women who already have that experience but when they come to us they go through a whole new training program and it's tailored to each individual so they'll train from anything just from six to 12 months Mm -hmm. and they will learn absolutely everything that we can teach them within that time what types of things they um very very detailed pockets um they learn about design they do the background as to where fabrics come from which a lot of them don't know um putting in zips, making a huge amount of different um, garments, working with different fabrics, understanding how they work together. Yeah. Um, That takes practice, practice, practice. And 
we send a lot of our stuff back. Oh, really? So, Quality control. Yeah, huge amount. So for about the first four months, yeah. everything will be rejected. <laughs> um, but what it means is at the end of their training, yeah. they're amazing. Okay. Um, and And being really harsh like that and being really clear about what that quality level is yeah. um, I think is what makes us today and, I, and and it means that we have an extremely skilled workforce yeah um, and so that's on the what I call like the supply side and so now thinking about you know actually distributing and retailing your line um, you know London is a hot house for new fashion brands uh, pop-ups cropping up uh, yeah. at every corner I mean, what are some of the more, like, what I call tactical and practical ways that you have tried to stand out as a brand uh, within the Western market? Um, I do, um, we've done a couple of pop-ups. We've got another pop-up coming in a couple of weeks' time. I find with ours that we sell when people touch it. So it's, it looks great online, but due to our price point, yeah it doesn't tend to you don't get that conversion rate online to the same degree and yeah. a, and a lot of the demographic actually aren't online okay um not used to shopping online yeah but we do pop up shops i go into big corporate offices with my rail and i sell direct to the staff during their lunch hour um i take it anywhere and everywhere and if you can get it, if i can get it on them i can sell it okay um it's getting it on them yeah <laughs> I think it's a it's an extremely crowded marketplace in London. Yeah. Um, it is hard to sell. You've got to have a really, really good product, I think. Well, in that respect, like you do. Uh, I hope so. And you have that quality threshold as well. Yeah. Um, are there any other, like, I guess, tips or tricks you'd say to other kind of fashion printers out there? Um, not just for fashion, but I think in business, you just have to be ballsy. Yeah. Like, you have to back yourself. I um, was in a meeting the other day at um, number 10 Downing Street. Uh, this doesn't happen to me very often, so this was an absolute <laughs> bloop. Tell one to Samantha. Don't really, don't really, you know, mix in number 10 that often. Um, but I was really, really lucky. I belonged to a networking group that invited a group of entrepreneurs in. And it was one of those moments where the guy who was running it then said, you know, is there anything I can do for you? And I whipped a coat out of my bag and I went, please, can you give this to Samantha? And he looked at me and you could just see him <laughs> nodding going, yeah, she's got balls. <laughs> but I think, Did he do it? Uh, as far as I know, yeah, I've still got to have I've still got to figure it out. I'm watching the media. Yeah, have you snapped her wearing it yet? Not yet. Okay. Um, <laughs> we'll get there, though. Um, okay. Yes, yeah, so I think I think business like whatever you do yeah fashion food finance yeah I'm on the F's at the moment I don't know why (laughs) um you have to be ballsy and you have to back yourself and you have to know that what you're doing is really good no matter how many knockbacks you get one of one of the things that interested me about your story as well is something that I think a lot of people suffer from when they're doing their own business or trying to create their own thing is this idea of the imposter syndrome that, yeah. you know, I have no business being in the fashion industry. And you particularly, you know, you're not necessarily from a designer or fashion background. Um, how did you feel about, like, yeah, playing in this arena, like not being a designer yourself? And is that something that ever 
yeah, you think about. I don't think about it because I think that I don't classify myself as a designer. I, I don't have a creative bone in my body when it comes to the design side of things, but I'm the woman that you go to to get shit done. My background's in operations. Yeah. Um, I know how to get from A to B. I know that it's not going to be a straight line. Um, it doesn't matter what industry you work in. Like it, When you're starting out, you're an imposter. You don't know anything about yeah. whatever you're doing. If you go into finance as a graduate you don't know what you're doing you can feel like an imposter and if you've got enough courage in order to run your own business and set up a manufacturing plant and a fashion line when you have no experience in either um feeling like an imposter is probably the last thing on your mind i've i've got staff to pay and i've got bills to to get out the door and and products to sell that's and not not as a woman either like i don't i meet a lot of women who think that you know, they're a woman in business and that holds them back. And I just think, well, you're just a person in business, though, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, we're all doing the same job. I've just got different skills that I'm bringing to the table. I think not – I actually think part of the success of the manufacturing side in particular is that I don't have experience in it. Okay. So, so I don't have – Yeah, you look at things a different way. I don't have preconceived ideas about how it's going to be. Yeah. Um, and – when I mean stuff goes tits up all the time um that's business right but you because you don't know what's coming you just deal with it so the manufacturing plant Holly Studios has opens it opened its doors to more brands I understand and I guess you know in some respects it's one of your most unique selling points as a fashion label I mean what why did you open it up it is unique to us, but then we have such an amazing centre that why not share the love? Yeah. Like the the more contracts we can get through, yeah, the more women I can employ, yeah, um, more women I can pay to to do the work, the more women we can train, the more brands benefit from knowing exactly where their stuff is made. Why wouldn't you open it up? Yeah, you know, um, it's worked really well. We've um, taken on a resort wear label Lilliput and Felix it's going really well the team love it I think they're sick of making making outerwear <laughs> so, <laughs> so a bit of diversity never yeah hurts. exactly and it, and it brings in a whole other skill base as well yeah um, which has been great for them and the woman who um we're working with at Lilliput and Felix like seems to like that I'm in the middle huge huge issue that people have retailers in the UK is that you're dealing with countries that operate in very different ways mm. they have very different timelines um <laughs> very different standards and that can be really frustrating you know fashion as an industry moves very very quickly mm. but you also have everything you do has a knock-on effect yeah um so you know if your fabric delays are late it impacts on your manufacturing yeah. If your manufacturing's not done at a certain time, it impacts on when the buyers can have it, and they don't tend to like that. So um, what we've found that she really likes is actually... So I can feed back to her. Okay. And I have that balance of understanding how Cambodia operates yeah. with understanding how clients in London operate and what their expectations are. Okay, so as a consumer, 
Can you, I guess, explain what, I guess, three things like one woman or man even should look for when they're buying their, their you know, seasonal winter or spring coat? Holly, Holly, Holly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, I, I think it's really, really easy to follow style and follow trends. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's necessarily the right thing for people to do. So I think you have to know your own style and and stick to that i think that's really really important um fit yeah. like everybody's body is different different coats will fit you in different ways it's really important to to try them on um warmth i th- you know there's there's no point the coat is a coat for ex- one exactly particular purpose so yeah, and, and the way that you get a warm coat is by having a higher percentage of natural fibres. Okay. So we do 100% natural fibres. What type? For the um, cashmere, llama, merino, wool. We do it primarily for that reason. It makes it warm in the winter yeah. and cool in the summer. Okay. Quality. Okay. Yeah. It, it, if you coat's an investment piece. Yeah. If you're going to buy a coat, you should be spending money on quality. Yeah. Um, you should be looking at the product to see whether it's of a decent value. It should have good zips. It should have good buttons. It it should be hemmed properly so that it doesn't fall down after you've worn it two or three times. Yeah. Um, what would you say your reckless dream for kind of fairer working conditions are in the developing world? trying to think whether I think they're reckless um equality equality on so many levels I think it's so important for us to be recognizing that just because you're working with a developing country that they should be treated in a different way or shouldn't be shouldn't have access to the same training Mm. or 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 a decent salary dependent on where they are based um standards have to be increased i think okay but i think the way that you increase those standards is people need to understand that these are very very skilled workers yeah in the 1950s we really valued dressmakers and seamstresses and and this is essentially what these women are. Yeah. Just because you're working in a developing country doesn't mean that time yeah. and investment isn't going into that skill base and that they should be paid well and, heaven forbid, work in an environment where they're not locked in and, and fires start and people end up getting killed, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I don't think they're reckless. I think they're <laughs> really basic standards. Human rights. I understand how we don't have... I understand how there are issues... Because I think when you're dealing cross cultures, it's yeah. it it's a difficult one. Um, I have to find a balance all the time between how Cambodia operates and what the norm is there and what my values are, and and find a middle ground. And there's things that you compromise on, and there's things that you aren't. And you know, something like safety is not something that you compromise on. Yeah. And I want to move to a lighter topic, hopefully. So this is Samira Stalks after all. Um, can you tell us an amusing story about someone you've had to stalk during your uh, journey with Holly and how that how that went or how that's going at the moment? Uh, I'm always stalking. <laughs> um, 
I am actually. I mean, you you read a lot of stuff and and you're constantly watching what other people are doing. I think as a business, that's just what you do. But we spend a huge amount of time um, stalking buyers. What types of buyers? Um, Selfridges, Harvey Nicks, Phoenix. If you're out there, we have some coats and a story. That, <laughs> um, it's it's so hard. Um, you know, I don't want to just sell our stuff onto just any site. I'm, we've, we get approached quite a lot, actually, about yeah. being stocked in certain places. But I'm, I want to be in places where we're valued and and people who get the story behind these beautiful coats. Yeah. So, yeah, we are cold calling on the phone um trying to get through to people who who see it as more than just a cold call and actually go oh hold on a minute you've got something really different that hustle takes a lot and i i've got off the phone sometimes and i've cried <laughs> but you know like you yeah. you've rung 10 or 15 shops and you are exhausted and yeah. that last person says no and Instead of saying no in a nice way, they yeah. say it in a rude way. And it's four o'clock on a Friday afternoon and you thought, I'll oh, just do this one extra yeah. call. And, you know, it's tough, but you have to do it. And it's the only way, I think. And you've got to be creative. So, yeah, we, we do a lot of brainstorming about how... How to get fun of... Well, I love the Sam Cab story. Yeah. <laughs> just whip one out and be like, what? give me that. <laughs> I've learned to carry coats with me on a regular basis. I can take my own off to give them if they need it. Um, it it's tough, though. Like, you know, a lot of these shops are so are not accessible to yeah. the average Joe public. So yeah. the only access that you do have is stalking them on Twitter and yeah. Instagram and going, you know, have, please have a look at my stuff, please have a look at my stuff, yeah. sending them products that yeah. you know that you'll never get back yeah. and you won't get any feedback on them. Um, so thank you massively to the brands who do come back and give you feedback. It's invaluable. Um, yeah, they're probably our biggest stalker. And, or uh, me stalking them. What's um what's the price range of the coats? We range from three two five to seven twenty. Okay, so quite a big discrepancy actually. Uh, it depends on what it is. Okay. Um, how much man hours go into actually making it, and how much fabric is involved, and and what that fabric consists of. Okay. So it's very very much focused on the actual production costs. Okay. And can you talk about maybe what I call your biggest mistake as an entrepreneur or your lowest point where you just thought, I'm just going to throw throw it in, like throw the towel in on uh, it? It's about every second day. Um, we had a, a really big issue, I think, in our first couple of months out in Cambodia where I came up against a group of people who, who didn't like what we were doing, who didn't like that we were a profit-making but we were set up as a profit-making venture. Um, okay. uh, I was kicked out of bars. I was oh, wow. spat at. I was abused. Um, I was told that I would never work in town again. I was in. And com- was this from local people? Or the this ex- was from expats based out there. Okay. Um, and it was. And presumably, people you'd worked with before. Um, I, I I knew them. Yeah. Um, I knew them vaguely, and I, and we'd looked at doing some work together. But when I'd mentioned that we had, we were setting up with the idea of making a profit, um, that just didn't go down very well. Uh, that 
wasn't that was definitely a low point I, I ended up having to stay out in Cambodia for seven weeks I'd intended to go for two mm. um so I rang my husband and was like yeah um you know how you said I was coming back next week that's not going to happen so I had about 48 hours to I had my machines on their premises at the time oh. um and I had 48 hours to get my stuff off their premises and find new premises okay um I had some very very nice people help me but it's um it was an extremely lonely experience yeah your you know it's your business and it's your baby and you've got investors in it and you know you you might work for yourself but you ultimately have to answer to an investor as to what's going on that was yeah, you start asking yourself whether you're doing the right thing. But I think the the fact that we got such a pushback yeah. actually confirmed for me that we were doing the right thing. Yeah. As a result um, of the stress associated with it and moving machines, I put my back out um, and basically was crawling around the place for seven weeks and now have a really bad back that two years later I'm still trying to fix. But... Um, yeah, so it is literally back-breaking work. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but also encouraged that, you know, you, you carried on. Um, yeah. Um, I'm going to move into what I call the quick-fire round. So I'm just going to ask you... This makes me nervous. <laughs> ...a series of questions. But um, So firstly, what would you say your top three values are? Um, being true to yourself, treating people with respect, and being honest. Cool. Um, what is your favourite fictional character? My first instinct is Superwoman. Yes. But that's, <laughs> that's probably not where I was going with that. But, yeah, probably something that's a really strong, independent female. Okay, we'll go with Superwoman. Yeah, that's fine. We'll go with that. <laughs> um, what was the last thing that inspired you? Um, I think I'm inspired every day. I, I speak to my team every day and... Our manager doesn't speak a word of English and can't read and write in her own language. And so this was two years ago, and she's now sending me voice messages on Viber and great, you know, and and is just is flourishing. And it's my staff who inspire me. Cool. And um, what is your favourite song? I don't know if I had one. Um, I'm. Th- so I have a very eclectic taste in music so I can be churning out the Dixie Chicks at full bore or I can have a little bit of Jack Johnson on in the background okay so I don't know <laughs> it's quite a, quite different quite um, a range it is quite a range so I don't know if I have a favourite one um, um, what tea do you drink? Um, good old we call it gumboot tea you don't call oh. it gumboot tea we don't even know what a gumboot is so a gumboot is a wellington okay um we call it so we would call it wellington tea which is english breakfast tea okay or a builder's tea okay. that's what you guys that's call it that's what we call it um and lastly i would just want to ask you what are your leah-isms so what parting and practical advice would you give to anyone out there looking to make a positive social impact through their business it's not that difficult it's really not I think if you have strong morals yourself, it's really easy to pass them on. Um, I think, I think as a as a business owner and entrepreneur, you have to remember that you are the driving force. If you are not happy with something, if your gut tells you that it's wrong, 
it's generally wrong yeah um and be confident you know everyone will tell you it's not possible great it definitely is well thank you it's a nice mm-hmm. nice ending parting note and thank you for being on the show today thank you thanks for having me thanks for listening as always please do sign up to the mailing list at samirastalks.com I share a weekly newsletter of news in the tech and business world, what resources are useful for starting or growing your own company, as well as who's coming up next on the show. I've got a whole line of superwomen lined up for this series, so please join me again in a fortnight. Bye.